Welcome, everyone, to Two Guys to the Dark Tower King, a podcast where we discuss the characters and connections in the ever-expanding universe that revolves around Stephen King's Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. To support the show, visit us at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. And you can buy merch at store.twoguysdarktowercame.com. In this episode, we'll begin our coverage of Carrie with part one. Let's start the show. In a small town in Maine, a 16-year-old girl, Carrie, experiences her first period in the girls' locker room at school. The rest of the girls taunt her before the gym teacher breaks it up and sends Carrie home. We learn that Carrie has a very religious mother, poor social skills, and is telekinetic. One of the girls, Sue, feels guilty and asks her boyfriend to ask Carrie to the prom. Another, Chris, has a plan to humiliate Carrie. Throughout this section, we learn through news articles, interviews, and papers that something terrible happens on prom night that destroys the town and kills most of its residents. Jay, we are finally tackling Carrie, which is Stephen King's first published book published on April 5th, 1974 with which is if I'm doing the math right for almost 49 years ago. Almost. In fact, it is 49 years ago. Well, today's not April 5th. Fine. <laughs> I mean, you could say it's almost 50 years ago too. I, I could, but that hits a little too close to home right now. So Oh. <laughs> so, just a little bit of background. King was teaching and living in a trailer with his wife and two kids while writing it. And I had always heard sort of the mythology behind this story is that he wrote this book, hated it, and then threw it in the fire or threw it in the trash and whatever the case, like the book was almost destroyed. And King's wonderful devoted wife, Tabitha, rescued the book and like pulled it out of the fire and batted out the the flames and rescued it and said, no, 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 you've got to publish this. And I learned in doing a little bit of research that he had written three pages and sort of got bored with it and threw it on top of the trash. And she picked it up, was like, read it. And was like, nah, keep going with this. It's, it's good. So maybe not as dramatic as I thought. Yeah. Well, you know why it couldn't have been that mythological level? Because he lived in a trailer. There's no fireplace in a trailer, Sean. <laughs> yeah, there I mean, could've it could have been, been like a campfire a, outside. A, but a pot stove or something, one of those things. Uh, yeah, maybe. Maybe. Whatever the case, three pages is a lot different than an entire novel that he threw out. So he wrote it, finished writing it, and actually he still didn't like it and thought that <laughs> he wasted his time writing it, but he sent it off anyways, and it earned him a $2,500 advance for the original hardback publishing, which is not bad money in 1974 by any no. stretch of the imagination. But then it was sold for the paperback rights for $400,000. And he received half of that, I think, between his agent and the publishing company, they got the rest. But $200,000 in 1974, thank you very much. He immediately um, quit his job teaching and turned his full-time to writing, which I can't blame him at that point. Yeah, I would have done the same. And not only that, the paperback sold 1 million copies in its first year. It was a New York Times bestseller. So I don't think that the hardcover really sold particularly well, but the paperbacks flew off the shelf, which um, a million copies of any book, like even nowadays, I think is just phenomenal. And it was the first horror novel on the publisher's weekly bestseller list 
since 1938's Rebecca. That's a long stretch between horror novels being on that list. Uh, almost 40 years. <laughs> <laughs> you got me. <laughs> Listeners, that's what's known as a callback. Exactly. So, Jay, this was also immediately picked up and became a movie being adapted by Brian De Palma in 1976, only a couple years after it was published. And this was a big deal. I mean, it's a big deal for King, of course, because now not only did he have this wildly successful book, his first book, but it was also being made into a movie which became wildly successful. And it helped to launch Brian De Palma's career. Yeah. Before this, he had done a few other movies that were not wildly successful. It was after this that he started to get his own recognition as a director. And he did things like Just to Kill and then Scarface. I'm sure folks have heard of that one. And then a little later, The Untouchables and... A Sean favorite. A Sean favorite. Carlito's Way. And then the Mission Impossible movie from 1996. So Brian De Palma is a pretty amazing director. And the confluence of early careers for both De Palma and King is like a really interesting crossroads. I have a feeling we'll be talking more about this movie on a upcoming bonus episode. Absolutely. We'll also talk at that point about the fact that you may not know this, but there are three other Carrie movies besides the original Carrie. And they're all going to laugh at you. <laughs> And longtime listeners, especially those who are patrons, may remember that there's also a musical which bombed spectacularly when it was put on stage in 1988. I was able to see it, I don't know now, if two or three years ago, uh, a local theater put a production on it. I saw it. And you can go listen to that bonus episode if you want to find out more about the Carrie musical. Yeah, it's worth a listen for sure. There's also a special episode of Riverdale that adapts Carrie. And I've never watched Riverdale, so that's all I'll say about that. Jay, tell me a little bit about your experience with Carrie the book, or Carrie the movie, or Carrie the character. Well, Carrie the character and I go way back. <laughs> almost uh, almost 49 years. Almost 49 years, yes. I would probably have passed the lie detector test to say that I did read this book, but when I started reading it for the show, none of it seems familiar. Mm. I've seen the movie a number of times. This story is in the zeitgeist to such a degree that you almost can't not know the story of Carrie. Yep. So it's familiar in those ways, but it doesn't feel like I've read this book before. So I honestly don't know if I've read this book. So I'm just going to say I didn't. Um, I think that this is a really good story. We'll talk more about what I think of the writing later. <laughs> Got it. Well, I know for a fact that I've read the book and I've probably read it multiple times, but I have not read it in at least 30 years. If I have, I would have read it in the 80s when I had my first big King run. Maybe I read it again when I was in college, but I don't remember if I did or not, but I definitely haven't read it anytime recently. And I have seen the movie multiple times. I'm interested to know though, if I've ever seen the movie uncut because I might have only seen it on like TBS or something. Yeah, basic cable. I have a feeling I've seen it, but it's been a while since I've seen the movie as well. And I've not seen any of the other ones. But we finally decided to tackle this book because I think we've read and talked about every other King book from the 1970s, except for this first one. And so this will get us through those first five or six novels. 
yeah, the beginning of his career, the earliest writings that he's done, and this is book number one. Uh, how could we continue to ignore it? Yes, exactly. So you hinted a little bit that we're going to talk about the book structure, and one of the things that is immediately noticeable is how much foreshadowing, and I don't even know if it's foreshadowing as much as King saying, hey, here's what's going to happen by the end of the book. Mm -hmm. I also found out when I was doing the publishing history research that the paperback novel, the cover of it was going to explicitly show the town on fire with Carrie's shadow as sort of like a secondary feature of the cover. So did they decide to save that cover for Firestarter instead? Yeah, exactly. Right. That is an interesting tactic to take, especially for a first time writer to say, hey, here's what's going to happen at the end of the book. What did you think of that, Jay? I think if you put the foreshadowing scale from one to 10, I think this book leans into like six, maybe a seven sometimes. Okay. But that's if you're saying five is right down the middle and, and just right. It's not too little foreshadowing. And I don't think he's really just knocking you over the head with some things. So I think it's closer to just the right amount, but it's also impossible for me to read this book in a way that I honestly don't know anything about what's coming. Mm -hmm. When I see the foreshadowing on the page, I know what he's hinting at. So when Carrie says, if only I could be the sword and arm of God so that I could get vengeance in his name. Uh, okay, yeah, sure. I can kind of predict what's coming. Or, or even more explicitly, when they say, I think this is uh, one of the very few survivors of the town, says, in the wake of 200 deaths and the destruction of an entire town, it's so easy to forget one thing. We were kids. So you're telling me at least 200 people are going to die by the end of the book and the, the, the town's going to be destroyed. Okay, got it. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if that's foreshadowing as much as saying, here's how the book ends. Yeah. In the very first pages of the book, when Carrie is walking home from her terrible ordeal in the girls' locker room, the narrator says what none of them knew, of course, was that Carrie White was telekinetic. Yep. Oh, okay. You're just laying that out there. <laughs> right. All right. It's not all these strange things are happening and we need to figure it out over the course of chapters or something. It's just, here it is on page 20. This girl, Carrie, has telekinetic powers. Yeah. So she's telekinetic. People are already picking on her and 200 people are going to die in the book's name, Carrie. I think I could put that puzzle piece together. Yeah. And she wants revenge. Yeah. There's a line that follows the telekinetic line that basically spells out that Carrie's out for blood right from the beginning. She is imagining Chris Harginson all bloody and screaming for mercy with rats crawling all over her face and crash her head in with a rock with a boulder crashing all their heads. She wants to hurt everybody. That's the one thing that I didn't remember. I, in my mind, if you would have asked me the story, it'd have been like, oh, Carrie was this poor girl and it was sad. And then all these people picked on her and eventually she snapped. Mm -hmm. And you could tell from the beginning, it's not that she snapped. She already had this in her. It's just waiting for it to come out. It's not like there was a moment that broke the camel's back. It's like, oh no, <laughs> she, she was willing to do it. And when you see her later on practicing her telekinesis, and it's like working out so I can get stronger, so I can do something. As you said, with the foreshadowing and with this, it's pretty clear that Carrie's a different character than I was thinking of. Yeah. It's definitely not that she is building up to something and then snaps. I think it is. I think maybe she's already snapped. We're starting the story after that's happened. Yeah. And so one of the other ways that this book does foreshadowing and is structured is rather than take a straight narrative from A to B, there's this epistolary format 
mm-hmm. where we've got what I mentioned earlier. There's scientific reports, some sort of like government findings, newspaper articles, the interviews with the, the few survivors. And so not only does that sort of hint at what is going to happen and explicitly explain some things, but also gets to some of this other stuff. Like when you just mentioned, like it says right out there, Carrie was telekinetic. Then we see, oh, and here's a paper from my science journal talking about how telekinesis works. And here's a- The TK a, gene. Here's a, a biography of Carrie and, and the history of how that might be and, and what other events in her life showed that she was telekinetic. So what did you think of this epistolary format? Because it's a little bit different than what King used in Salem's Lot. I don't think it ruins the experience, but I'm not sure how much it helps. Mm. I kind of feel like King was sort of hiding behind this a little bit. Maybe he didn't have the courage of his convictions writing this story about a young girl with telekinesis without adding this layer of, I don't know, fictional validity. It's like, oh, well, if I put fake scientific journal articles and, and all the rest like you mentioned, then within the world of the book, then it's true, it's possible, it's easier, in fact, almost required that you accept it. Yeah. And it's, again, hard for me to put myself in the shoes of a reader who's unfamiliar with King, unfamiliar with this story in 1974, reading this book fresh off the shelf in the bookstore. Would I have been able to accept it and enjoy it if I didn't have that that epistolary content? I don't know. But looking at it through my eyes now, almost 50 years later... (laughs) This is an easy story. This is a plot that I could see on any TV show or movie. Sure, of course somebody's got powers. This is like Rogue in the X-Men, you know, (laughs) or any of the X-Men. Just give somebody powers and they've got powers. I, I am okay with that. Yeah, we talked a little bit about this with The Dead Zone also, how King tries to put some pseudoscience to explain Johnny Smith's powers. And he's doing the same here, as if the readers need that. Don't worry. This could really happen, and this is how it might happen to get that way, as opposed to just letting the story rely on, all right, here's the what if. What if there was telekinesis? Here's how it might play out and go from there. I'm also reminded, as somebody who grew up in the 70s and 80s, that it seemed to me that there was a lot of pseudoscience in the water. I think we've talked about this before. But, yeah, we did. You know, like In Search Of and those types of shows. And like, I remember having a whole set of like Time Life books about paranormal and supernatural things. I think they even had advertisements with Vincent Price on them. And Peter Graves. Yeah, and Peter Graves maybe even too. Yeah. But like all of these things, right? <laughs> that sort of build up like, yeah, it's possible. We as people just don't have all of the science or some people on the fringes might understand some of this. And I think King's playing into that as well. Whereas later on, there's no explanation in 112263 of why is there this time travel door? Oh no, there's just one behind the closet there. Let's just that just is. Let's not worry about that. Let's just play the game. Um, all this might be explained by the fact that this is King's first book, and maybe he doesn't have the confidence that we talked about. What else did you think about this being King's first book that maybe stands out differently from his others? I think you just hinted at one of the first things I, I think we should talk about is that the book's kind of messy. All the epistolary content I feel isn't necessary. And I also feel that the book is longer than it needs to be to tell the story that it tells. So if this were something that King wrote a little bit later in his career, it might have only been a novella or a particularly long short story that wouldn't have all the extra content in it. It would just be character with telekinesis gets revenge, the end. And it would have been good, nice and tight, right? Yep. Or if it was like King very much later, it could have been a 900 page novel that covers the same story. Sure. (laughs) 
But and yes. that would have been totally unnecessarily long too, but it, he would have taken the time to like maybe flesh out other characters and give us lots of reasons to know them. Uh, sure. Um, another messy aspect of it is the most consistent thing in this book is how inconsistent it is with perspective. Mm. There will be a single paragraph that has the perspective and innermost thoughts of five different characters. <laughs> and that's just not something that's good to do. It, it can be very confusing when you read it. I'm okay because I don't mind reading a paragraph twice if I need to, to just make sure I know who's thinking what or who's about to say what to whom, but it would be better if he had cleaned that up more. Right. I was interested in this trope of puberty being the trigger for powers, and I was trying to trace back, like, is this the first time this has happened, or is King borrowing from this? Is this something around? And it seems from the little bit of hunting I did that this may have actually started with the X-Men. Really? Not Rogue, because Rogue was not was one, one yeah. of the original X-Men, but the initial ones, I think, where puberty is a trigger for powers. It's something that King revisits in a little bit, like it gets hinted at in Firestarter, even though she has her powers earlier, but they talk about how her powers might exponentially grow at that point. It happens in Dr. Sleep, where Abra gets more powerful as she's approaching puberty. Uh, it happens in the Institute. So this is a trope that he is playing around in. I don't know if that's necessarily related to the fact that this is a first book, but it does seem to be something he leans on heavily here. Having said that, I think that that first scene is iconic enough and disturbing enough and set up in such a way that it works very well to make that direct connection. But that's also another thing that's kind of messy in this book. It's like King couldn't quite make up his mind. The entire story begins with and in, a, in some way hinges upon the beginning of the first menstrual cycle, the girl becoming a woman, right? Yep. That's where page one begins and the story begins. So you could easily say, yes, this is a coming of age and also the, the puberty gives you the powers. But it also establishes that Carrie's had telekinetic powers since she was a very small child. Mm. The story of the stones happened when she was like two or three years old. Yeah. So she already had powers. She's had very powerful powers since the beginning. So which is it? That's the continued messiness yeah. that I find here. I agree. But based on the fact, as you just said, that this book starts off with a scene of a girl having her first menstrual cycle, other girls reacting to that, and this focus on women, you could sort of see why Tabitha pulled this out of the fire or crash can and said, hey, mm -hmm. Steve, why don't you give this a shot? I'm interested to see how this turns out, because this is something different than you've maybe written before, or you've got something unique here. And part of that is just, even in this first you know, 150 pages that we read, how much the women are running the show in this book. Yeah. For somebody who often doesn't have the best track record in writing women, and as we see in the next few books that he writes, where we have Salem's Lot, where the main woman character gets turned into a vampire pretty quick and has to be killed. Spoilers. Oh, yes. Spoilers for one we covered before. Uh -huh. The Shining, which even though King treats Wendy better than Stanley Kubrick does in the movie, I don't think Wendy's necessarily the strongest character in that book by any means. In The Stand, Mother Abigail's pretty strong, but Franny is sort of somebody who stays at home while the men go off to, to do The Stand. So the women characters don't always have the best track record with King. And in this book, however, all of the main characters are women, 
And they're pretty strong characters in moving the plot along. Absolutely. Yeah, you've got Carrie, Margaret, Carrie's mom, Sue Snell, and Chris Harginson. Whether you want to classify them as protagonists, antagonists, or, or just some random religious bully or something like that, all of the important characters in this story are women, uh, which is for just about any book is pretty amazing. And for King, it's unusual. Yeah. And I think it's great. And it's not just that they're the main characters, it's also that they're driving the events of the story. Yeah. So not only Carrie with her powers and and Carrie's mother sort of attacking Carrie for who she is and what she represents, but in that very first scene, it's the gym teacher, the secondary character, who breaks up the mocking of Carrie. She sort of tells the principal, here's how you have to handle this, because you're sort of an mm -hmm. idiot and you don't know what this means, and, and here's how you take care of it. And then later on, Sue is the one who's saying to her boyfriend, here's what we need to do to make me feel better, right? I need you to go and ask Carrie out on a date. And it's Chris who's telling her boyfriend, I need you to go slaughter a pig so we can collect pig's blood for some reason, which we won't talk about in this episode. But all the women characters are either directly part of the plot, directly influencing the plot, and moving the events along. And the male characters are very passive here. This book definitely passes the Bechdel test, right? Mm. In the first couple pages. <laughs> When is the next time King writes a book that passes the Bechdel test? I think it might be The Stand. It's probably The Stand, when Franny and Mother Abigail talk. And then after that... Off the top of my mind, it's gonna I'd have to do some research to figure it out. Yeah. So he comes right out of the gate with a book that actually passes the Bechdel test. And it's like he wasn't even, wasn't even thinking about it. No. He was just writing an interesting story to him. Or at least, if not interesting to him, because we already established that King wasn't too happy with it, interesting to Tabitha. Yes. And interesting to the millions of readers who picked up the book and made it a bestseller. So we'll continue to follow that, because again, I don't think it's just in this first part that the women characters are going to be running the show. I think that throughout this book, we're going to see that. Spoilers. Spoilers. The other thing is that, no surprise to me at least, that King drew on his love of Shirley Jackson for this book. In my opinion. And that is in this writing about scapegoats, which Shirley Jackson's most famous story, The Lottery, is based on this whole concept of scapegoating. And here we see it in Carrie to a big, big degree. And there's, you know, these that that first scene where the other girls are starting to throw the sanitary napkins at Carrie, and Sue is throwing them too, throwing them and chanting with the rest, not really sure what she was doing. So she gets caught up in this. I mean, literal bloodlust almost hmm. with this group think. And when they think about it, after the fact, after it happened, the gym teacher says she looked, Carrie looked the part of the sacrificial goat. And later on, when they're talking with the administrators of the school, they say she's always been a group scapegoat. So it's like written out, definitely clear. Carrie is somebody that other people pick on because of who she is. And as anybody who's been to public school in the United States at any time period, you know that if you somehow end up the Carrie White of your school yep. by grade school, you're probably going to stay that way all the way through graduation day of high school. Yep. And it's terrible, but it's also real. And that's one of the things that King always writes about things that he knows. And that's why so many of his main characters are authors or something like that. But here, he was still teaching yep. in high school. And the story takes place in high school. And it's basically. 
He was just writing a story about what he was seeing every day. Yes. Except for the telekinetic superpowers, I assume. Uh, yeah. Well, who knows? Maine's a weird state, so who knows what he sees out there? <laughs> yeah, who knows I, I will say the interesting there. thing about that is that you had said the public schools are like this and kids are like this. And unfortunately, there's usually a student or students in a school who gets picked on. What I found interesting with King's take here is it's not just at school that Carrie's being picked on in the scapegoat, but she is at home as well. Uh, true. And Margaret's religion is such that, and her thought process and how Carrie came to be, it's implied that in one of those pseudoscientific pieces about the aftermath of the incident, is that Carrie's mom was potentially raped, already had a fear of sex, and the fact that Carrie was the outcome of that made it in such a way that Margaret, Carrie's mom, scapegoats Carrie, right? So she mm -hmm. is not happy with her. She sees the fact that she exists to be an assault on herself as part of her own sin. Mm -hmm. And now that she's becoming a, a woman, that's a further reason to think that Carrie needs to be punished. She puts her into this closet where she keeps her and makes her pray for hours at a time. All these things are not just happening at school, but happening outside of the school as well. Yeah. And just as a side note, I wonder if we should even continue to refer to Carrie's mom as religious. <laughs> she is a bully of the worst kind and uses some aspects of religion that she cherry picks as an excuse or as a, a medium for her bullying. Everything that she does, all of her pseudo beliefs, all of the things that she says are sins, they're just the things that she doesn't like. Mm. It has nothing to do with any religious teaching. It's just a vehicle for her own, her own small-minded, petty hatreds. Fair enough. I think that that's a good point. All right. We've talked a lot about this is King's first book. He had started to think about the Dark Tower when he was very young, 19. Any chance that there are any Dark Tower thinnies in this book, his first? Sean, I wasn't sure that I would find any thinnies, <laughs> but I found so many thinnies. Yeah, I've got a couple as well. You want me to start? Go for it. All right. I'll start with the fact that Carrie was born September 21st, 1963. And one plus nine plus six plus three equals 19. Yes, that is true. That is true. It was when I realized that, that this book is actually King writing about the future as well. Because this mm. book happens in 1979, I believe, and he was writing it in 74. Oh, yeah. I hadn't really thought about that. The future, <laughs> where people have telekinetic powers. Indeed. So we were just talking about how Margaret is pseudo-religious, and Carrie said that Mama had battled the black man and had vanquished him. And the black man, the dark man, Randall Flagg, I know that that's not who they're talking about specifically, but maybe? Could be. I'll buy it. Because, hey, the devil works in mysterious ways, Sean. He does. And he often is wearing a denim jacket with a smiley face button. Exactly. Let's see. The name of the assistant principal at Carey's High School, um, his last name is Morton. And he is often called by his friends and coworkers, Lovable Mort. And Mort, which, you know, means death. It does. Is also the name of one of the three people that Roland 
was able to uh, control and go through uh, a doorway in the drawing of the three. That is correct. He was also the person who dropped the brick on Susanna. Yes. And pushed her in front of the subway train? Yes. Mort. Mort. I noted this line because of one specific word, but then I turned it into a thinny. And the quote is, she, Carrie's mother, and Carrie had stared at each other down the short length of the front hall for a moment, like gunfighters before a shootout. It was one of those brief moments that seem much longer in retrospect. And the gunfighters obviously stuck out for me Mm -hmm. because of Roland, obviously. But this idea that there's these brief moments that seem longer in retrospect is what caught my eye because of the shifting time within the Dark Tower series, how things, time just has a weird way of working in Roland's world. And also, I think it's in the Wolves of the Kala when Roland talks about how you have to you prepare for weeks or hours or days for a 10-second gun battle. And, and then that time slow, slows down right while, while you're actually going through that gunfight. So all that made me think of the Dark Tower, and I turned it into a thinny. I can dig it. Uh, let's see. There's a character named Estelle Horan who is interviewed during one of the retrospective pieces of the book. And there's a note that the door chimes from her doorbell played a tinkly phrase from the refrain of Hey Jude. And a doorbell that plays Hey Jude, man, not only is King obsessed with this song, but it's what the piano player in Tull was playing when Roland first arrived. That's right. Hey Jude. I'm sure there's like a tiny version of him sitting in the little box. Whenever anyone presses the doorbell, he plays it. And then if you look inside, he goes, it's a living. (laughs) Um. So most of the characters in the book are of high school age. We know that Carrie is 16. I think they say that Chris is 17 and Sue is 17 and maybe her boyfriend's 18. But Chris's boyfriend, Billy Nolan, who spent a year repeating the ninth grade, presumably before he learned how to shoot his cuffs during examinations, was 19. 19, you say? Yeah, I said it. Yep. That's Sorry, I, I was momentarily confused by the phrase, shoot his cuffs. I do not know what that means. I mean, you shoot your cuffs when you go like this in a suit, right? This is a podcast, so you can't see the act I'm doing. But, but what does that mean? Why would you do that? Like you do that so like your suit and your, your shirt line up better. Oh, okay. What that has to do with during examinations, I have no idea. Was this some sort of reference to future John Travolta in Saturday Night Fever? He's I, I'm sure that's- about a- the future. Well, in 1979, Saturday Night Fever took place in the past, so oh, the world had moved on by then. <laughs> oh, man. It's like the nexus of the universe here. What else you got? Uh, there's a line in here that reminded me a lot of what Susan said to Roland in Wizard and Glass when they would go off on their little trysts and make love in the tall grass. And she would say, if you love me, love me, right? Well, there's a scene here with Sue Snell. Oh. Another Sue. Oh. Oh. And she's in the back seat of her boyfriend's car, Tommy, and she says, love me. My head is so bad tonight. Love me. Love me. Mm. Hmm. Another Sue saying, if you love me, love me. Interesting. for a thinny? Yeah, I like it. Any others for you? Nope. Nope. All right. <laughs> I have one more. This is something that I associate with other worlds than these. There's a line... I can hear the steady little whine of my tape recorder. It all seems a little too brittle, too glossy. Just a cheap patina over a darker world. A real world 
where nightmares happen. Mm. And this is something we've touched on and experienced in other King books, like Christine, where there's that long night where Roland the Bay is driving Arnie around. And it seems like the town is layered over the old version of the town from when Christine was new. And that's like other worlds than these. And this is this is the glossy fake world over the real dark world where the nightmares happen. This is that again. Yeah. King has these ideas right from the start. It's really cool. It's also, you know, this is the multiverse that he just leans into with the Dark Tower. Agreed. That's all I got. Well, let's move to yucking it up. So mine is from close to the end of part one. And that is when a number of the boys are off to a currently unmanned farm where they plan on killing two cows and draining them of their blood. Two pigs. Two pigs, not cows. I saw sows and I think I was reading cows. <laughs> I knew it was That's pigs. a lot more blood. Yeah. And this is more for the imagery here for yucking it up for me. One of the sows dropped dead with its tongue protruding, eyes still open potato chip crumbs around its snout. I think that's that level of detail that pushed it over the edge. Because we've all seen dead cow with its tongue out and its eyes open. I'm pretty sure that's how I'm going to die. <laughs> I'll be sure to drain you of your blood and put it into a metal container with a lid, put it in the backseat of my car. You know, the coroner is going to come in and go, you know, he didn't even get to finish his <laughs> potato chips. That How sad. <laughs> that's true. I don't have a yucking it up. That was probably the yuckiest thing that you just mentioned. There were disturbing things, things that made me very upset, angry, but nothing grossed me out. Well, I have a feeling there might be some in part two, so. All right. I look Something to look to forward to. More <laughs> yucky stuff. You know what else I like to look forward to, Jay? That's the support of our patrons. Ah, yes. I look forward to that as well. Yeah. So our patrons support our show. They get access to exclusive Patreon content, such as bonus podcast episodes. We're in this sweet spot where the books that we've been reading lately, The Dead Zone, Carrie, all have adaptations that we're talking about. So we're putting those on the bonus feed. So if you want to hear those, get our thoughts on the movies, become a patron at patreon.com slash two guys dark tower. Yes. And if you are like our latest patron, certainly Cheryl, who recently joined at the apprentice level, I hope that is certainly how you pronounce your name. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think certainly, Cheryl, your username sounds like a must-see TV Thursday night show from the <laughs> mid to late 90s. Right after this Seinfeld, we're premiering a new show, Certainly Cheryl. Don't forget to tune in. Followed by a new ER with Anthony Edwards. Now I'm thinking of Little Shop of Horrors with Suddenly Seymour. <laughs> All right, well, let's move on to some fun stuff. You would think in a dark book like this, there's not any fun stuff, but we found some. Indeed, we did. Fun stuff. Why don't you start us off? All right. I have often admired King for the pop culture references that he puts in his books. And you can pick any of his books up, and it seems like there's some reference to something of the time. This one was to Mortimer Snurd, which I had to look up because, again, this book is almost 49 years old. and It's almost 50 years old, even. <laughs> and Mortimer Snurd was one of Edgar Bergen's ventriloquist dummies. Not his most famous ventriloquist dummy, which is Charlie <laughs> this, McCarthy. This is a deep cut ventriloquist <laughs> yeah, dummy reference. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> 
maybe if you're Jay at my age, you might have heard of Charlie McCarthy and, and know who Edgar Bergen is, but that's only because maybe you saw him on The Muppet Show when you were a kid. But uh, Mortimer Sturd was a secondary ventriloquist dummy that Edgar Bergen had. And Edgar Bergen, famous also for being Candace Bergen's father. Mm. Um, I wanted to call out this good line. The eye of memory opened only in dreams. Hmm. I'm getting this vision of that episode of The Twilight Zone where there's the alien with a third eye on his forehead that opens up. Mm. So I had to call out this line because it also calls out one of my favorite Simpsons lines. They, Sue and Tommy, had become a fixed star in the shifting firmament of the high school's relationships. The acknowledged Romeo and Juliet. And of course, if you remember, it started out like Romeo and Juliet, but ended in tragedy. <laughs> And that's where the, that's exactly where this story's going. <laughs> that's right. Uh, there's a reference to somebody who had a goiter, mm. and that his neck looked like an inner tube. And uh, I'll be damned if that doesn't remind everybody of the symptoms of Captain Trips in the stand. Absolutely. So King is not hiding anything here. There is a teacher named Mr. Edwin King who had Carrie for grade seven English. And Edwin is Stephen King's middle name, so not much of a stretch there. I'm guessing that Carrie is a composite of maybe a child that King taught in seventh grade English class. What do you think? Most likely, yeah. And since you're calling out Mr. Edwin King, there's also a teacher in Carrie's school named Mr. Stevens. So <laughs> yeah. there's both a Mr. Stevens and a Mr. King who are teachers at this high school. You could tell that King wrote this when he wasn't very rich because, you know, by the time he started to do his Bachman novels, he was able to look around and say, oh, I'm listening to Bachman Turner Overdrive. So there's Bachman and oh, there's a book over there and it's by Richard Stark. And so I'll be Richard Bachman. And here he's like, all right, I got to think of names. I, I look at, a mirror, at his driver's there's, license. There's a Mr. King. <laughs> and I look in the mirror. And there's a Steven. All right. Those are the names I'm going to use. Yeah. <laughs> He, he writes all his character names like Kaiser Sose. <laughs> yeah, just looks around. That's all I got. My name and my name. All right. Uh, I thought this was interesting. Once again, King's writing what he knows. Apparently, Carrie's mom worked at the speed ironer and folder down at the Blue Ribbon Laundry in Chamberlain Center. And you know who else worked? The speed ironer and folder. Was it Mr. King. Stevens or Mr. King? It was both. And there's another whole story that King wrote called The Mangler about a speed ironer and folder that magically comes to life. Which we which talked about in a bonus episode. In a, in a bonus episode. Yeah, that's right. Patreon.com slash Two Guys Dark Tower if you want to hear about it. And there you go. All right. So we've talked about how King has certain obsessions and one, it comes out pretty distinctly here. This is another retrospective in the epistolary parts of Carey. And he says, the two most stunning events of the 20th century have been the assassination of John F. Kennedy in 1963 and the destruction that came to Chamberlain, Maine in May of 1979. So again, King's obsession with John F. Kennedy's assassination. Uh, one thing I want to point out here is I do think that the assassination of John F. Kennedy was a stunning event of the 20th century. I could even possibly make the case that it was maybe one of the two most stunning events. I don't know. That seems very American-centric. and But certainly there's something more stunning than the events of Chamberlain, Maine, whatever they're yeah. going to be in this book. I like, mean- I don't know. World War I? World, World War II? II the bombing Korean at Hiroshima? War. 
Pearl Harbor was pretty stunning. Like there's all sorts of stuff, but I guess 200 people dying, um, especially like the release of Star Wars episode four. Fair enough. We could just end the discussion right there. <laughs> just mic drop. Uh, do you have any more fun stuff? I have one more. And the line, the car screamed up the rutted stack end road in North Chamberlain at a 65 that was dangerous to life and limb on the washboard unpaved hardpan. This is a description of Billy Nolan and his chums heading up to go slaughter the pigs to collect their blood. It also very much reminds me of the final ride of Buddy Repperton in Christine, because Christine chases him out onto this more and more remote road and eventually just bashes his car and then eventually him to death. Yeah. It had a very, very strong echo to that. It also had me really worried, like this was a washboard, unpaved, hard pan road where they were going to drive back with <laughs> buckets of blood in yeah. the trunk. Seemed a little and sketchy. I think it was like six or seven people packed into the car. So you know the crappy suspension's already bottomed out. Yep. Then you put in buckets of blood and it's like tin buckets. It's not it's not perfectly sealed. Right. The inside of that trunk is gonna be like a gore fest. That's gonna be yucking it up. Maybe that's why they need two buckets. <laughs> for spillage. For spillage. <laughs> they gotta account for spillage. Well, I know a lot of you have probably been wondering, what have Jay and Sean been up to? I mean, our last few episodes, we've been focused just on Christopher Walken and our other worlds in these, but there's got to be other stuff that we've been doing. And here's our chance to catch up. So I have started to read and watch a series called Slow Horses, which is on Apple TV. And the TV show on Apple TV is based on a series of books by Mick Herron, the first one of which is Slow Horses. And Slow Horses refers to spies in British Secret Service who, for a variety of reasons, have been sort of shunted off to the secondary agency. And through the wonders of novels and TV, they always get to be at the center of these cases that are important to the security of England. The books are funny. So they, they sort of hit all the check marks for me. It's a spy series, it's British, and it's pretty funny in a dark way while still having these thriller elements. I was already on board with the books. They're very entertaining. And then the TV show stars Gary Oldman as this Cold War spy who's now in charge of these failure spies, and he treats them like shit, and he is smoking and drinking and lazy and fat and doesn't give a shit about anything, but he's also extremely good at his job and very witty. And a total turnaround from Gary Oldman playing George Smiley in the John le Carre Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy. The cast is great, the writing's great, and the action sequences are pretty good for what is basically a TV show. And that's Slow Horses on Apple TV. I will second that recommendation. I have watched all of the available episodes and it is fantastic. Great. I'm glad you enjoy it. Everything you said, spot on. Definitely recommend. Cool. What have you been up to? Well, Sean, have you ever heard of a show called Columbo? Uh, yeah. I just got one more question about that, though. <laughs> Maybe you can help me answer it. Is that the TV show with Peter Falk in it? It is. It's the show with Peter Falk. And if you're at all familiar with Columbo, 
It's a mystery of the week series about a detective who solves the crime. And every episode has different characters, different crime. There are no standard cast members. Mm. And there's a new show out that follows this exact structure, and it's fantastic, and it's called Poker Face. And that's my actual recommendation. It stars Natasha Leone, and she is, let's just say she's the Columbo equivalent. Okay. But the twist here is that she is a gifted detector of lies. Mm. It's not like she has a superpower. She's not, you know, one of the X-Men or something like that. Not Rogue. Not even Rogue from the X-Men. But if somebody says a lie, she basically knows to 100% certainty that it is a lie. Mm. Whether it's innocuous or important, she knows when somebody lies. That seems like it would be helpful if you were trying to solve a crime. Yes. The cool thing is, is that unlike Columbo, who has the backing of the police department Mm. and his police credentials and his trusty Peugeot 305, Natasha Lyonne's character in Poker Face is on the run and she's not a cop. And she is living on her wits. She's more like David Banner, not Bruce Banner, David (laughs) Banner in the late 70s era Incredible Hulk show, uh, where she's just a drifter. And wherever she's drifted to in that episode, something happens that she helps solve. Conceit one is that she can tell a lie. And conceit two is that she's just wandering the earth. So David Carradine style, like Kung Fu? Yes, exactly. Nice. So it's just an excuse to have all sorts of guest stars, lots of fun. People like Ellen Barkin have been in it, Chloe Savini, Adrian Brody. Every episode is going to have different folks in it, different story, different situation. It's available on Peacock, as is Columbo, by the way. I'm very interested in this show, and I'm also very interested in going back and watching Columbo. I am correct in thinking that unlike many detective shows, this is also like Columbo, and it's not a whodunit as it is a how was it done, where you already know who did the crime at the beginning of the episode. Is that correct? Yes. So you're playing along with her trying to figure out how is she going to put this all together to capture the person who did the crime or figure out who did it, which is how Columbo does it as well. Right. Right. In every episode of Columbo, the episode begins with the crime and you see how the crime happens and who did the crime. And then it's up to Columbo to, to solve the crime and then prove who did it. Yep. In Poker Face, you see the first 15 minutes of the show, you're just meeting these new characters in this new place, and something happens, and she's in the right place at the right time to help set things straight. Very good. And I believe that it's like also- Like in Quantum Leap. Which is also coming back to Peacock soon. I think it already did, yes. Well, there you go. Um, and this is Ryan Johnson of Knives Out Mysteries. Yes. Very good. Well- I hope you guys are enjoying our other worlds than these. Tell us what recommendations you have when you contact us. Yes. When you email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com, tell us what you're into these days. Okay. That's all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our social media are available in the show notes. Check out our merch at store.twoguysdarktowercame.com. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. Next episode, join us as we cover Carrie, part two. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McCurr. Thanks for listening.
Also, this started the tradition of taking Stephen King books and translating them for the film. For the film. (laughs) What are you saying? (laughs) Someone forgot how to talk. (laughs) Translating them for the film. I'm sorry. I don't mean to just laugh at you like that, but... (laughs) That was really bad. I could say as I was going, I'm like, where's the sentence going? No, we're good. Bum, bum, bum.